You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. This is Culturally Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. Uh, my guest today is Bill Gullen. Uh, Bill, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Ari. Thanks for having me. I'm Bill Gullen. I'm the president of Finch Brands, a Philadelphia-based uh, brand consultancy that works with uh, many consumer product companies on many different things, such as messaging and uh, consumer targeting and, and market research. Uh, so thank you for joining us today, Bill. So you actually uh, reached out to me to have this discussion um, yes. to talk about uh, the recent ad uh, by Gillette that was posted online and has uh, sparked a lot of conversation. Um, I was thinking like, what was, you know, this is like the most conversation about one single ad since probably like the Kendall Jenner or Pepsi ad. Sure. Which was around two years ago. Um, and so these things don't pop up that often. And um, so if you haven't seen this ad, I would encourage you to Google it. Just, you know, Google uh, Gillette ad, and I'm sure it'll be the first result. It's yeah. like, um, it's like 90 seconds. You can watch it and see what it's all about. But can you just like, how would you describe this ad to someone who hasn't seen it? Well, yeah, well, it's kind of a Rorschach test, I think, in terms of what you see. I mean, I, I reached out, A, because I enjoy this platform and, and I've been a, a listener of it, but B, I thought a long-form conversation about this in a, in a space such as this is warranted. Uh, I mean, the, the ad is a, or seems to be a large sort of sweeping brand ad that is intending to play off of G- Gillette's heritage as, you know, the best a man can get has been that slogan for probably 30 years. And it's a leadership brand now within the Procter & Gamble umbrella. And they had at one point over 70% market share. And really what the ad is, is a sort of a long form call to action, or at least I interpreted it as a long form call to action for men to in some ways reinvent or at least renew masculinity around terms that were uh, maybe more in keeping with with where the world is going. And I think the the sort of tagline or slogan that that, that closes the ad is the best a man can be, if I'm, if I'm recalling that correctly. And I think that's right. So, you know, th- there's, there's a commercial or sort of commerce based conversation to be had about this and whether it's sort of sound business and brand strategy. And then, of course, as you might imagine, the usual suspects have interpreted it as yet another volley in, in this sort of larger culture war. And so on a bunch of different levels, you, you're right. There's been a ton of reaction. And in our private conversation, you indicated you weren't sure how long that shelf life was going to be, but I'm not so sure I agree. I, it really is a reflective of a lot of the dialogue that seems to be happening across a, a bunch of different platforms. Mm-hmm. So in the, so in the ad, you see different kind of vignettes uh, linked together. Uh, some of them involve bullying and like teenagers yep. bullying each other. Uh, there's a kind of uh, slightly surreal scene at, at a barbecue where there's like hundreds, <laughs> like a long row of hundreds of uh, fathers barbecuing, and then they see they're, yeah. well, they're watching without intervening. Uh, some young boys fighting each other, and then what? Mm-hmm. Are the, and then there's there's some kind of the things that are more, I guess, directly related to the issues that Me Too has brought up. Is that, right. is, that's right. But please yeah, remind I, us. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the the phrase toxic masculinity appears in the ad, and I think some of the criticism, particularly from from voices on you know maybe on the right, although I don't want to sort of stereotype it. Uh, does key in on a couple of, of images and, and, and sort of words or phrases that, that either float through or are voiced over. And, and that's one of them. Uh, Me too, obviously in there with the hashtag and then toxic masculinity and some of the other images. But I think part of the, part of the reaction and, and maybe the, the fact that it is a bit of a war shock has to do with, you're talking about some of these images. I mean, there are, uh, this sort of bullying conversation, for example, one of the montages 
is of this boy. And it's very affecting. I mean, I have a son in kindergarten, you know, daughter in third grade. I mean, this does definitely hits you uh, of a, of a mom consoling a son who's being bullied online and being called a freak and, and all these other words. And, but it's interesting. I mean, some of the behaviors that are being cited in this ad, I think are largely and, and almost overwhelmingly agreed to be across the line. You know, the society's already sort of begun to deal with them. And then there are others that are more sort of boys will be boys. That's one of the frames uh, and phrases that's repeated in the ad that they seem to be taking target at. And, you know, last I checked, uh, there's not a ton of a boys will be boys sort of defense of cyberbullying or, or of Harvey Weinstein's conduct. I mean, so there is a conflation of behaviors that are stereotypically associated with being male uh, in America and elsewhere, uh, some of which have been, I think, rightly sort of drummed out of polite society and others of which may be closer to the line. There's some workplace stuff in there. There's, you know, it's a bunch of images, as you say, some of which are drawn from the headlines. They have Terry Crews testifying on Capitol Hill. Mm-hmm. And other, other of the images are, are sort of uh, almost advertising creations, this huge, uh, you know, 100-man barbecue. Yeah. Okay. So, um, okay. So from, okay, why don't we pause for one moment? And can you okay. explain your role and what exactly it means to work at a brand company versus an advertising company? Is it like, sure. what, hap- is it like what we saw in Mad Men? Or or, <laughs> yeah. is it, or is it something different? I have a, a Don Draper sort of quality. <laughs> um, no, it, it's and, and that's a good question. For those of us in, in that world, the, the lines aren't even as clear. Uh, you know what what we do, and at least in uh, at my firm, is we counsel brands on big issues. Who are we? What do we stand for? Who's our target? What are the values that we seek to use to differentiate ourselves? How do we connect? And and one of the artifacts of a process of brand development may be advertising. It may be packaging. It may be product naming. It may be uh, all sorts of downstream social media, all sorts of downstream elements that are designed to uh, activate the sort of commercial potential of a brand. So we define brand as the sum total of the actions that you take to express your difference. And so where we focus is very far upstream, which is helping brands. And we've worked with parts of Procter & Gamble. We worked with a lot of other big sort of consumer-facing companies. And typically what we're doing is often conducting market research to understand the consumer mood, uh, the choices they have, and to help brands uh, differentiate themselves in terms of the message. And yes, that does bleed in, of course, to their creative approach. And we have a team that does create advertising, that does create names and logos and packaging and all of those other artifacts. But I think the distinction might be that advertising agencies, and I think one of the big shops called Gray is the one that is behind this campaign. Advertising agencies are often working, as Don Draper did, sort of from campaign to campaign. What's the... What's the next way in that's sort of going to capture people's attention or compel them to take an action or to or to think about us a certain way? So brand and advertising are very you know related. I would deem advertising to be really an artifact of what a brand is and how a brand seeks to compete and win. I'm not sure how much that demystified things, but I think in our the lines are a little clearer maybe uh, when you're on the ground. Yeah. Um. So when you are like. Is there such a thing as like the uh, the famous scenes portrayed in Mad Men of like the pitch meeting, um, where or are you the one playing the Don Draper role and trying to sell, you know, a company on the vision that that you came up with? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm drunk in the corner smoking <laughs> now, looking at all the, the people walk by. No, I mean, yeah, it, obviously that's a dramatized and very sort of historically maybe accurate, but 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 it's a period piece. But yeah, I mean, today we are in in pitch meetings where we are coming back. Uh, two clients of various types and sizes and challenges and, and trying to, to 
convey to them the importance of embracing an idea that we're putting forth. Often in our world, market research, and you know, I know Don Draper in his world was very sort of dismissive of the, the woman who was trying to bring uh, the voice of the, of the consumer into their boardroom. He was much more intuitive and vision-driven. And I think there's probably still some debate. I mean, Apple was famous for not you know, there's a time to listen and a time to lead, right? Steve Jobs never wanted to do focus groups. And perhaps that's because you no consumer is going to tell you, you know, what I need is this little thing that's going to play my music. They don't know what an iPod is mm-hmm. uh, until you provide leadership and show it to them. And then, you know, they can't get enough of it. But in our world, we're doing a lot of research. In fact, earlier this week, I was uh, when we were um, discussing uh, this on, on Twitter, I was in Chicago uh, operating focus groups for a leading uh, wine and spirits company in the consumer realm with the express task of helping them untangle why one of their brands is underperforming and help them define a message as well as a target. You know, who is it that we're focused on? And then how do we want those folks to to regard us so that we can compel them to take action? And so I'm sure in the case of this campaign, as well as the overriding brand direction that it represents for Gillette, I'm sure that this agency, whether it was Gray or whether there was another firm that was working on research, came back and, and told them things, which is why I'm loath to criticize it. And I'm always loath to criticize uh, campaigns that, that come through a process that I haven't necessarily been exposed to, because often those insights uh, really reveal a lot about what's happening or what can happen in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so when you first watched this ad, I assume you probably heard about it the same way most other people did. It's kind of like seeing sure. people on Twitter buzzing about it. What were, yeah, your, right. what were your initial thoughts? Like, well, First of all, why is Gillette trending? But I mean, <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate it. So here, here's a little bit of the context that, uh, you know, Gillette's hurting. Uh, the, the razor category, like many others, has been, you know, to use the popular word, has been disrupted by Harry's and Dollar Shave Club and these other uh, more nimble uh, companies with a different sort of model of distribution that have really connected materially with with consumers. Gillette had at one point over 70 percent market share. Most recently, at least I think I saw that's at 50 or below. And that's not because Schick is beating them. It's because <laughs> these new concepts have entered the market. And. These are new channels. These are friendlier, more approachable brands that don't have the sort of intermediary of a retail store. So they're selling online. They're convenient. The subscription model is different. So long story short, Gillette has dropped prices as if off a cliff. A 12 or more percent price drop in consumer products is almost unheard of in such a short period of time. And, you know, their model used to be this hub and spoke. It was you buy the razor and then these really expensive replacement blades. And their advertising used to be about change your blades, change your blades. You know, they had a song, if you remember. I think it was Gillette who had a jingle. I'll, I'll <laughs> I, never, I don't recall that. Forget it. But, well, you you know, you're her suit here with your with your beer. But, I mean, guys like me, I mean, I, <laughs> I got to change my blades or else it's going to hurt. So they got me to believe that. And over time, I mean, that, that was their, their business. And they were accumulating share. And they've been disrupted. Prices have dropped. They're struggling. So they need to do something. There's, there's no debate. And from a business perspective, I said, yes, they need, you know, you, you had I been asked last week about Gillette, I'd say tough category, tough competitive set. They need to do something. And brands that are placed in this box uh, need to marshal all of the services at their disposal, be it technical innovation to create new products, which has been a strength of Gillette that transform the category or put forth a new value proposition. Or they can do it through advertising that breaks through, or they can do it. There's a variety of ways they can do it. But I think they've taken a page, my, my sense, my interpretation is there are brands that are value, they lead with values. You know, this last year's Super Bowl, everything's about corporate social responsibility. Everything's, you know, you see Tom's and Warby Parker and these other brands that have really taken the marketplace by storm where a part of their message is about what they value. I mean, even longer term brands like Patagonia, Patagonia is all about activism. I mean, yes, they're about style, but, you know, Ben and Jerry's. I mean, so there's, there's 
long-term as well as sort of new order brands that, that, that use this sort of naked approach to a value system as a way to connect. And I'm sure Gillette probably saw that as one of the avenues. So we, we respect the, the desire to take bold and decisive action because the second thing I'll say is that big companies like Procter & Gamble and brands like Jeanette are, Gillette are notoriously risk averse. It's another line extension. Let's have five blades or six. I mean, that's, that's how they work because there's a lot that they're, that they're jeopardizing. Right. Just to, just to, to cut in, um, yeah, you know, when I was, when I started shaving as a teenage teenager, uh, the, the Mach 3 had just come out. Right. And then people were making fun of it because I guess, you know, previous it had always been one or two blades. Right. And then there was an Onion article like in the late 90s that was one of their fake editorials and the headline was, Fuck it, we're doing five blades. Right. Absolutely. Written by the over four. Right. Yeah, written by the CEO of Gillette. And then like it actually did happen. Like ten years later, they came out with the five blades. So where do they go next, right? Yeah, right. So it'll be six. But so I'm I'm taking the the long blathering way around the barn (laughs) to say two things. From a business perspective, they had to do something, A. And B, I appreciate and find very refreshing big bold brand ideas. So those those are my immediate business reactions. Now my immediate I'm a dad, I'm a citizen, I'm a consumer of culture reaction was, ooh, this is tough. Um, and the reason I had that reaction, I think, and I didn't have maybe the hysterical reaction that some did on the, you know, on the right, you see this is an attack on men. On the left, you see, I think the guy in Fast Company or guy or gal, I couldn't tell uh, based on the name, but was saying, well, why aren't they boycotting Fox News, <laughs> you know, as an advertiser? I mean, so the, so the crisis continues, you know, the, but so from that perspective, the, the ad didn't hit me. I mean, it landed in a dissonant way to me. I think there was very clear and obvious terrain to send this message, but not in this way. I mean, send it through the lens of maybe showing these images on TV or showing them in, in the way that they showed them, but in some way bringing home the belief that sort of the real man, so to speak, the one that they cater to, the one who you don't hear about, who isn't involved in all this malfeasance, is this is really what masculinity is. It's not Harvey Weinstein. It's not. So could you have celebrated uh, the man? And delivered the same message that there's sort of a future approach to masculinity and, and, and avoided alienation. I don't know. I mean, some people say good, you know, all PR is good PR. I don't agree. And now while I don't think this boycott is going to be long lived, people throwing their razors down the toilet, I do think it's a missed opportunity, uh, you know, for Gillette to sort of reinforce, I guess, their voice or what they see as their voice of, of, of sort of masculinity, but do it in a way that, that is celebrating the fact that 98% of us already at a barbecue see kids beating the hell out of each other. We're going to stop it or uh, don't engage in sexually harassing behavior. And that's where the conflation issue to me kind of struck, Arya, which is if you conflate behaviors that everyone knows obviously are, are bad and have already been sort of drummed out of society with things that are maybe a little bit more interpretive or, 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 or controversial, you create more eyeballs, you have the predictable response, but I'm not sure that you get anywhere in terms of driving product. Yeah, that's interesting, and there's a lot there. I mean, it's it seems very unusual for an ad to kind of like uh, criticize potential customers and and, yeah, and like, an overt way, right? Like like in a way, almost purposely alienate them. Like, okay, do you think when they were coming up with this, do you think they knew there would be a backlash and that that was like would help them in a way because people are still talking about it? We're talking about it. This is the first yeah. blogging heads ever devoted to a razor <laughs> commercial, as far right, as I right. know. So first of many to come. Right? So I, I guess, like, I'm kind of a naturally cynical person. Like, how cynical was this, like, attempt to just get people to talk about the brand where yeah. they weren't before versus, like, 
do they, you know, do they actually care about right. some sort of crisis of masculinity or do they really just care about selling razor blades? Well, I, I'm cynical too. And I'm part of that, you know, it, whatever the equivalent is of the military industrial complex in our industry. I mean, I'm part of it. I'm a cog in the wheel of helping brands be, be different and be successful and activate their full potential. So of course, I, I you know, the, the quotations that came out uh, from the brand manager and others, um, if you take them at their word, they absolutely expected and in fact courted some level of controversy here. There is no doubt that Gillette has been mentioned uh, in a variety of places in, in, in a much more urgent way this week than last week and maybe than ever before. Um, so there's no doubt that part of the goal here, and as noted, this is what this brand and business needs to do, is to create social currency uh, around this. And there's no better way, perhaps, than wading into a dialogue that is fraught uh, in some ways, but, but full of strong opinions. There's a reason why Super Bowl ads, particularly in the Trump era, go a little bit further. Um, and, you know, I, I do think, though, that there's a couple questions from a business pers- from a consumer perspective. Is this the future we want <laughs> where every brand choice is some expression of political belief? But from a from a commercial sort of consultants perspective, there's probably a couple rules that you sort of need to follow if you're going to wade into territory like this. First, the brand needs to have standing. And I think to, to your point. I wonder the degree, yes, they've always served men, but I wonder the degree to which Gillette authentically can either point to in the past or point to in the future activity. You know, they're going to donate a bunch of money, they say, to certain foundations that support masculinity. And that's all well and good. And that probably squares the circle. But I'm not sure the degree to which Gillette ever sought or really has standing to lecture or to encourage their audience to act a certain way. So some of the reactions that we've been seeing on Twitter are people just rejecting the whole concept of their razors, telling them how to act. How about you shave my face and do it in a way that doesn't hurt? You know, that's been one of the strains of comment. So yeah. there's no question about standing. And then, you know, you remember a couple of years ago on the Super Bowl during the, the year, I guess two years ago when everything was political, Audi comes out with this close the wage cap ad. Okay. Mm-hmm. Out of nowhere. And, it, and you, I don't even know if you ever saw it again. So on that, on that commercial, you had Airbnb standing up against the travel ban. They had standing. That's a brand that is about connecting people across borders. Their customer base is overwhelmingly the, you know, air quotes, elite group that is on the left and traveling and really wanting to experience the, the vibe in these new cities. That's what Airbnb is. It makes sense for them to stand up for the for something that way. And they, they have standing and it connects with their audience. But Audi closing the wage gap when their entire executive team is men, they've never said anything about the issue before and they never <laughs> were going to afterwards is crazy. It, 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 it's so cynical and it reeks of just glomming onto something uh, for eyeballs. And the Super Bowls may be a time to do that, but it didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, and then there's the kind of, you know, are they, so it would be one thing if they were like, you know, Warby Parker donates glasses to people in third world countries or whatever right. who don't have them. So we can all pretty much agree that's a non, non-controversial yeah, right, thing. Right. But then there's this other, you know, so they're not just saying we're, we're giving, um, a million dollars to doctors without borders. Like they are, they're taking right. a kind of political stand. They are. Yeah. And it, you know, so much so that there were a lot of people who immediately got <laughs> pissed off. Um, right. there's a quote that uh, Amanda Mull in the Atlantic interview did a piece on this and she interviewed, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this Pankaj Bala, who's the North American right. brand director for Gillette. He said the intention was not to be political at all. Uh, but I think it is important to stand for more than the product's benefit that you provide. And I think that's the mm-hmm. expectation of our younger audiences. Um, so there's a couple things there. One's like the kind of generation gap angle. And, but then there's also like, oh, we're not, you know, 
we're not yeah. being political. That's disingenuous, um, I think, or or ill-informed. Mm-hmm. I don't know if if you've been if anyone's been part of this dialogue, and I, dialogue may not even be the right word, but yeah, I, I'll let you. Sorry, I interrupted, but yeah, that quote. Second half of the sentence I agree with. We're always telling brands to stand for something, but the first part of it seems a little bit incredible, uh, you know, to me, just given the the nature of the debate and discussion around, you know, these these types of issues. Right. And so I was thinking like, so as our video audience knows, um, I'm not currently shaving because I have a beard, but um, <laughs> I, I was a Gillette man or whatever uh, for a number of years. And the reason was because when I was a teenager, um, for some, at my birthday at some point, 16, 17 or 18, I got a coupon in the mail from Gillette that was for a free razor, you know, with the handle and the razor. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that would be like my first uh, safety razor or whatever the category is called. <laughs> and so I got it. And then once you have it, it's like, you got, yeah, as you said, it's the hub and spoke thing. You got to keep buying the blazer. You got to buy a new oh. handle. Um, so I was with Gillette for a number of years. I, I guess I never thought they stood for anything aside from, yeah, cutting the hair off of my face. Right. Um, I couldn't have told you any like, you know, mood association with, with the brand or anything. It was just, you know, it's a pretty you know, simple thing of a sharp piece of metal that you're pressing against your skin. This right. isn't like, you know, this isn't like a car or something. So. Yes, yeah, so, and then uh, I was thinking, like, well, who is who is this really appealing to? It has to be young people because that's when you kind of make the decision of what brand you're going you're going in with. Yeah, um, sure. And you know, there was a some person uh, threw their Gillette razor in their toilet and took a photo of it and put it on Twitter, uh, and this went viral because it was so silly. Yeah, it but was silly. I'm guessing that's an older person who was doing that, whereas the right. young person probably wouldn't care that much either way. Or not a very like aware person either, because that's just not going to work. That razor's going to be problematic in the toilet. I think. <laughs> yeah, and you can't flush it, so you have to reach into your own toilet and pick it up again. So that was kind of a stupid yeah. stunt yeah. to pull. Um, but yeah, so is this you know is, is this like really they're they're trying to target like 17 year olds, and it's just that people who are. 40 years older and have been using the same razor brand for their whole life or right. getting pissed off at it because yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, yes, I, you know, most there's a concept with brands called total lifetime value. I mean, there's a concept that, and, and, and in, in different categories, loyalties are formed at different key moments. These might be sort of trigger moments. We were, you know, when you deal with uh, one of our clients is in the hair accessories business and our research told us that uh, there's sort of a couple of really key moments in her life. And of course, I'm not a great spokesperson about the hair accessories category. Certainly not the women's one having no hair and not being a woman. But, um, you know, the research was pretty clear, which is she's she really enjoys experimenting uh, with her hair. And as she sort of comes of age in the, te- you know, in the early teens and into mid teens, it, it becomes something, a way for her to express herself. And then uh, through college, you know, she's building a sort of a durable sense of style and who she is. And then into adulthood. Uh, whatever path she she chooses with her life, um, she has some of these relationships with brands that may be based upon just simple sort of habitual replenishment, but it isn't a you know about a deep connection. But in some cases, it may be that this is a brand that's that's stood well for her and, and helped her find confidence and express herself the way she wants to. And, and it's a brand for that reason that that really does connect. I mean, I think you know you were you were connecting with Gillette uh, because of life stage and because for a long period of time they did what you wanted them to do. I think the, the challenge though, and what the quotation, what I do agree with in terms of the quotation is that, you know, the rules are now different in the razor world. I mean, Harry's and, and Dollar Shave and these others, they're connecting with young consumers on a bunch of different levels. One 
it's the subscription model and it's sort of e-commerce based and that's just lifestyle. You know, it comes at regular intervals and you don't have to worry about it and it's easy to, to do. And they have these other products and you click here and it comes. It's easy. But, but also at a value, and I'm not sure whether they give razors to people who need them, but th- their sort of brand personality is current. And I can speak Dollar Shave Club is the one I use. And so I can, I get it all the time. I can speak to it. You know, just the way they write, <laughs> what, what the box looks like, the whole experience is just, you know, they get me. And I'm not not in the age target you're talking about, but having a brand that, that sort of gets you is is cool. I mean, I, I went into Warby Parker. My, these are new glasses. My other ones broke, and I'm never going to Lens Crafters again. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> you know I, I didn't feel cool enough maybe to be there. And, and there's a store. I'm in Center City, Philadelphia. There's a store near me on Walnut Street. I know most people don't have a store near them, but in Manhattan and elsewhere. But I mean, it felt a little too cool for me. But I kind of liked being part of it. The brand just has a there's a tightness about who they are. They know who they are, and they. They can connect with you, and you're right. Brands that maybe looked at as commodities, like like Gillette, they have a fixed number of sort of directions with which to build those connections. One is, as you were saying, through product innovation. We talked about this earlier. The different number of blades, you know, it may be a product that just does a better job, but other ways are through their voice, are through uh, what they seem to believe. I mean, you know, corporate social responsibility. There's a finite number of sort of paths for them to take. So I'm very sympathetic to why they may have done this, that the content of it is a bit problematic to me. And, you know, again, easy to criticize from however many miles away, but I mean, Gillette to me always did have a manly sort of feel, the packaging approach, the best a man could get the song. Some of the commercials that they ran throughout the eighties and nineties sort of representing it was, it was the pinnacle. It was athletic achievement. It was suave. It was manly. It was all these things that, you know, when you are 16 or 17, you're sort of growing into yourself and it's time to shave or whatever. These are probably feelings and scents and, you know, visuals that you sort of want to, or that many want to associate with themselves. So, I mean, there was a a connection there, at least I think for some. And uh, the question is, it's a category that's under siege. So what do you do? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a, yeah, you're, you're characterizing it as a, you know, kind of a, they had to take a risk. Um, so yeah. do, do you think they, pulled it off and we're only, you know, we're a couple of days out. So, you know, there's no way we can actually tell if their sales are up or not, but do you just, yeah. have, as the conversation has rolled out, do you think this has been a success from their perspective? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends on how you look at it from a perspective of impressions, which is sort of just the rough number of probably hits to the website or views to the, to the ad or just the overall, you know, it's, it's sort of in the water blowing in the wind. No doubt. Uh, they've, they're on, you know, on the tips more tongues than they've been probably ever. Uh, However, uh, the goal of building a durable uh, brand with deep meaning and strong performance, the jury's out. And my guess is no. I mean, if you think about the nature of the category, I mean, they are going to need for people to switch to them. They're going to need to provide an affirmative reason to gain back market share, either from Schick. And so find somewhere in your mind the image of the person who's going to see this and is just like, this is the brand for me. Well, one of the speculations that I got when I sort of posted the question on Twitter, and, you know, my Twitter following is very, very small, but it tends to be people in the marketing business where I am. And so there were some interesting opinions shared. And one of the ones was, well, maybe it's one of the goals is that they have some data that says that women are making these purchases in the household and that men aren't buying for themselves and that, you know, some women play the role of household CEO. And part of that means they buy the razors and and I could certainly see, uh, you know, not to get all stereotypical here, but I could certainly see some of the messages, you know, wrapped within this campaign as being very appealing uh, to women. And Gillette has a whole side of the business, Venus and other things that is focused on the female consumer. So we don't want to underrate uh, the potential impact and lift sort of there, but specifically related to um, getting someone like me 
to, first of all, check my behavior <laughs> and, and maybe evolve it in areas where it needs to be. And then second of all, embrace this brand as really being sort of a, a, a torch leading the way for the way I'm supposed to act with my colleagues and my family and my clients and the world at large. I think that's a pretty significant stretch. <laughs> right. It is, after all, only a razor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they make uh, razors targeted at women as well. Um, sure. I believe my wife uh, has some of them. And I, and I saw people complaining on Twitter being like, well, you know, you uh, have long reinforced uh, stereotypes about women in your uh, advertising towards us and the razors of pink. True. And, um, you know, <laughs> you could you could do something different there. Um, the pink tax, right? They're more expensive. It's the same product. The so-called pink tax, where they just make it pink and they make it more expensive. I mean, yeah. that's true. That's true, or it seems true. Um, so, I guess I get. Well, here's one other thing. So, you know, we're we're calling it like an ad in a commercial, but this is not a traditional ad or commercial because those are on TV yeah. and they last thirty right. seconds. Right. Uh, this is like a web thing, and I am I don't get <laughs> broadcast or cable TV anymore, so I have no idea if this is airing. Uh, maybe it is, but it would have to be in a truncated form. Maybe yeah. thirty seconds. Like they, they mm-hmm. would have to pull off something to get the same message in just in just thirty seconds. Um, how does so? How does like that aspect shift things? That you know, there's you can release a long ad online. It might go viral, right, right. and then you're stuck. You know, but you're forced into this straitjacket of uh, the the, t- the TV length. No, that's also a good point because you you're either forced in, into it or you are. Uh, taking really shrewd advantage of the fact that you're, you're launching this, getting all of the viral uh, currency, but not having to pay to put it on the Super Bowl or put it anywhere else. I mean, you, you probably recall that during the 2016 election cycle, my recollection at least, was that some of the sort of, sort of ads or concepts that had the greatest impact on sort of shaping the narrative of the campaign never ran in any sort of media forum. I mean, they ran on social media, they ran online, they were on YouTube, they were put forth into the Twitter sphere or our campaign website. So there is a new set of rules for how yeah. to, how to drive eyeballs. In, in politics, that's kind of become a classic thing over the past decade yeah. or so is that they make a con- an ad that's much edgier than they would ever air on TV. Right. People look at it online and then the cable news starts covering it and showing the ad. So they, right. they get sure. free coverage that way. They do. They and do. without, you know, paying any, any money. And then, yeah, I think the, um, isn't it, isn't it the case that the, um, the Willie Horton ad only like ran once. Right. Something like that. And it obviously has uh I mean, I think the, the, the LBJ, Goldwater, you know, Daisy ad yeah, yeah. only ran once too. And those are the ones we remember. So, yeah, I, you know, so there's, that's a double-edged question. If they really mean this and it really is a shift in how they want the brand to be regarded and, and, and how they want masculinity to really be played out across America and beyond, if they're really committed to this and it isn't just, as you say earlier, a cynical way to get eyeballs and become part of a, of a conversation, we'll see what they do. We'll see if they do run it in broadcast. We'll see what impact this has on on their packaging. We'll see what impact this has on what they choose to sponsor. We'll see the impact on product development and and how the how the business grows or, or how it doesn't. My sense is that um, maybe like you that maybe it was a trial balloon. Maybe it was an attempt to glom onto a larger conversation rather than sort of a deep seated shift in brand direction. I'll give you an example. One of one of the campaigns that has, at least in our industry, is regarded as being one of the most successful in the past, you know, decade or so was when Domino's basically apologized for their entire existence. You know, they, they had, uh, they had gone astray and the business was suffering. They had a new CEO and, and they remade their pizza and they basically had this big apology campaign. Uh, this was a different time. It was before social media was as, as meaningful as it's become. But I mean, that really shaped, they organized the business around that concept. 
uh, from, you know, new packaging and new promotions in store and, you know, everything was new. The whole message wasn't just, I'm going to put an ad saying it's new, give us a try, but we're going to make this a central organizing principle of how we deliver this sort of business concept. I mean, that's at its best. And of course, you'd expect me to say this given the business. I mean, that's the power of brands. I mean, brands is sort of central flag in the moon de- declarations of what we value <laughs> and how we seek to operate and on what basis we seek to connect. We'll see if Gillette intends this to be that. My sense is that maybe they don't, uh, you know, using that to, you know, political playbook of, a lot of sizzle over here and, and attracting some eyeballs. And then really where they're going to be focused is on uh, FSI freestanding inserts for those not in the business of how to promote, give you 15 cents off a razor and get people to buy it at grocery and have nothing to do with masculinity. And that's often where the sort of meat and potatoes of how that category gets, uh, gets bought and sold is, is, you know, where people are making purchase decisions at shelf. So yeah. we'll see what they do. And I, I don't, you know, as of now, all that we've seen is this long form ad, their pledge to do some level of donation, uh, to sort of undefined causes. Um, and who knows? Who knows? Super Bowl ads are notorious for advancing big ideas and then sort of disappearing. You know? hmm. So I don't know. Maybe that's what this becomes. Yeah. And with the, with the Domino's, uh, they, I assume, improve the quality of the pizza and like yeah. how fast it got to you and so forth. I don't like, like, are they going to add the sixth and seventh blades? Like, no, it's the same, <laughs> right. it's the same razor that it was yesterday. I assume they're not right. going, there's not going to be like a little hashtag me too emblazoned on the, <laughs> right. on the razor or something. So, yeah, it's much more about the psychology and then, than like some fundamental like quality issue or something. Right. But I, th- I think that's not, sorry to interrupt, but I think that's, that's a mistake. I'm not saying that you put me too on the handle, but I think the, the, the strength of the competition that has changed that category is not just about marketing sizzle. It's about distribution. Um, it's about overall brand voice. It's about product and it's about lifestyle. And so, you know, it was like GNC, which is a business that, no offense if they're listening or watching, it's a business that really doesn't need to exist anymore. I mean, they have, they have thousands of stores, but I mean, they, they've been cratering forever. And, you know, you just don't need a freestanding vitamin and supplement store. And like many uh, leaders do, they thought their rebirth was going to be found in a store redesign and a big campaign. Well, after that fades, and it fades pretty damn quick today, what's left it's a business with no right to exist. You know, it's just, it's just how it was a month ago. Once that fades. And so, you know, we're watching that brand and others like it circle the drain. Sears obviously is another one. And that's, and that's a shame for a lot of reasons, but brand, when, when these messages become central principles, statements of belief that are paid off in an integrated way across the entire consumer journey from product development to sales and marketing, of course, but into, you know, all the other sort of manifestations of a larger business strategy, that's where they have the potential to really be transformative, just like they are for, for these disruptors, Harry's and Dollar Shave Club. If this is just from one campaign to the next, then, uh, you know, it, it may have the short shelf life that you, that you think that it will. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how long the debate will go on. It'll see what they, we'll see what they do next. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, something else will happen. Trump will say something in the next 12 hours and then we'll be Probably talking about something Probably by the end else. of this afternoon, right, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to just briefly share kind of a anecdote, um, that I thought of about this. So I mentioned the ad with Kylie, is that her name? Kylie Jenner? It was one of the Jenners, yeah. Kendall Jenner. Kendall Jenner. Um, so they, so Pepsi did this ad, um, like a year and a half ago that was, uh, Kendall, that was, uh, it showed like a, it was kind of like they took, 
a Black Lives Matter protest and sucked out all political content. So right into it, yeah. <laughs> and so it was people like like young people marching on the streets and they were holding signs that said like together or like right, now, right, right. <laughs> just total you know nothingness. And then uh, Kendall Jenner, who's a model, is you know having a photo shoot, but she sees the young people marching outside and she like has a Pepsi, so she's like, I'm going to go join the crowd and she joins them marching on the street. And then there's some cops standing there, you know, looking menacing. And, um, and she hands one of them a Pepsi and he accepts it. And then like everyone's having fun. So yeah, the world, the world got better, right? Immediately, right. <laughs> so this was like pretty rad. I mean, like with the Gillette thing, it's been a split, um, whether people like it or not, like the Pepsi one, I think was seen as a disaster and pretty much. Nobody liked locked. it. Right. Um, and, and that's one, sorry to interrupt. You asked whether or not they knew this was happening. The Pepsi one, by all indications, I think they walked into that one. I think they walked into a left hook because they just didn't get it. Perhaps. I mean, they were marketers and they weren't connected, you know, all the Breitbart politics is downstream from culture. Well, commerce is too. And uh-huh. that is an example of, uh, you know, I think they walked into it, but in this one, yeah. But yeah, that one was, nobody liked that one. Right. So I, so about uh, two years ago, I was working at the University of Rochester in the communications department. And um, so this would have been after the first Me Too stuff happened, I guess. But there was a professor who was accused of sexual harassment who, um, the, a lot of people thought the uh, fa- the faculty and the administration handled it poorly, so people mm-hmm. were protesting, and a lot of students were protesting um, one day, and they you know had a, had a rally, and then they were marching to the president's office to deliver a you know petition or something like that. Not and, a Pepsi, right? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> they I worked in the basement of the main administration building, and some young people, young students came in, and they had they had a. Um, container of Pepsi and they, they, they wanted to hand out Pepsi as a symbol to saying like, you know, we don't mean harm. We know you guys are like doing a good right. job, but we're just expressing ourselves here. And, um, I didn't take That's a Pepsi funny. cause I'm a Coke person myself. There but, you go. Fair enough. Right. But it was like, it was very funny at the time. And I and it showed the that the, you know, the kids, the kids are smart and clever and ironic. And, Always. but it also Always. was like, you know, even this ad that everyone knew was, um, a, was a disaster and a joke. Like it still inspired people to like take concrete action in the real right. world, even when they were like, doing something serious. Right. Um, in a, mo- in a mocking way. Well, one of the, one of the other ads, I think you're right that that's the last one that was, well, the last two, there was one in between the Pepsi one and this one, which was the Nike Colin Kaepernick ad. Right. And, uh, that one, and again, you know, it doesn't seem like there's been a ton of follow up, but I mean, that one, whatever one thinks that one made sense to me that, that is a brand that has historically, you know, even from its days back in the running era with Prefontaine and others, this is a brand that was this is a brash brand. I mean, this is a brand that's associated with with athletes and whether it's Michael Jordan, Republicans by sneakers, too, or whether it's, you know, whatever it is. It was never maybe the bad boy Iverson, you know, kind of brand. It was not <laughs> and one, if you remember that brand. But but it was about athlete connection. And it was about and, and so. That one made sense, even though Kaepernick had a fairly small, at least visual role. I guess he was narrating the ad and then he turns around. And, but I mean, you know, that was very much in keeping with what the Nike brand to me has, has been and, and is evolving into. That one seemed linear. Mm-hmm. Uh, controversial, yes, but linear. And that one seemed like it could potentially, yes, maybe cost them, but also gain. Uh, that was a, you know, that was a, Planting a flag in the, in the, I mean, mix, I like to mix all my metaphors. That was planting a flag in, in, in sort of the culture in a way that was in keeping with those who are real tastemakers and influencers in their category. Uh, the Kylie Jenner one seemed to me like a complete just miss, just a lack of awareness of the depth and texture of the situation that they were sort of parachuting into. Yeah. Whereas, whereas this one, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm as cynical as the next 
guy or gal. Uh, and I'm sure there was a reason uh, here, but I'm, I, I think they probably anticipated the hue and cry. I'm not sure how they couldn't have. Yeah, and that one, that one sparked a backlash from conservatives and, you know, people like cutting their Nike socks up and, right. for, you know, throwing, setting their gym shorts on fire or whatever. Right. Um, it also, there were also, there was, I guess the opposite of a backlash was it a front lash. There were, there were a lot of folks who really rallied around the brand there too. A lot of athletes, a lot of commentators, a lot of woke, uh, voices who, and again, you, you don't know what the impact on sales is. But who really saw that as as a as a cultural sort of flashpoint that they wanted to get behind? So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's you know the conversation continues and and commerce here. All all we kind of try to do is is not you know not to necessarily glom on to to moments or movements, but to you know I was a poli sci major way back at Davidson College, and we we didn't have pre professional I mean you know stuff. I we didn't have marketing classes. I I was a poli sci guy. I was political theory was what I studied and what I was passionate about. And one of the reasons why I love branding and why I love the work that we do is that it took me a while to sort of understand it scratches a bit of the same itch. I mean, brands is, are about systems of belief. They're about core principles. They're about rallying people around a, a structure that seems good and right and just. And so in many ways, and you know, some people may view it as a sign of the apocalypse sort of in terms <laughs> of commerce, eating everything up. But but brands that connect and have sort of devoted followings at, at almost a mission or purpose level, that's exhilarating to me. And I think these ones that are kind of square pegs that are brands that were kind of trying to do that or capture a moment in a way that feels maybe more transactional, you know, they don't get there. They don't get there. But brands that are authentic in, in sort of the founding story all the way through the way they execute, the power of a brand to be not only a meaningful driver of business performance, but a meaningful sort of impact on the way we organize and build relationships. It's there. It's really there. The best brands can do that. Apple, um, you know, and many others. So anyhow, it's an, it's a, it's not unpredictable in terms of the, the Twitter debate here, <laughs> but, but there's a bunch of layers to it that are interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I think it, it is a fascinating thing to think about and all that, uh, you know, why, why do we, uh, why am I a Coke man instead of a Pepsi man? You know, they probably right. taste about the same and <laughs> you said the Pepsi ch challenge and I, I don't know how I would have done with that, but, um, yeah, yeah something about <laughs> Coke has worked <laughs> to create, uh, over the decades to create something that, uh, makes me want to drink it. Um, no <laughs> why don't we end it there? Um, so you are on Twitter. Can you tell us your Twitter handle if you want to follow you? Yeah, come follow me. I can't promise anything uh, interesting, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's at Bill Gullen, B-I-L-L-G-U-L-L-A-N. Or for those who are interested in, in marketing and branding, our firm, uh, Finch, like the bird brands. So I have my own podcast called Real World Branding. Again, I'm not sure if the audience is interested in, in interviews with branded business builders. We do it every other week, and it tends to be folks who take us through their career journey and some of the key inflection points as they built the businesses that they that they work for or operate. And so for those interested in that, if there is any crossover, please uh, come join us. But uh, either way, I, you know, the platform at blogging heads is, is uh, a rare, at least from a listener's perspective, a rare place of, uh, of debate from all over the spectrum that tends to be literate and respectful. I hope I've contributed to that. Oh, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, and yeah, we'll have to think about the, the blogging heads brand and how we're doing <laughs> that way, maybe offline. Um, but okay, so, so uh, thanks, Bill. Thanks to all of our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Blogging Heads TV. Blogging Heads will always be free for you to watch and listen to. And we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. 
The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.